This is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and we have another wonderful talk from Ramdas from August 1989. And before, I just want to mention something that's very relevant to this particular talk, which the talk is around how to become impeccable with whatever we are handed karmically in our lives. And that's a very general theme to this talk. And but it as I said, there's a reference here that we are going that would help support some of the things Ramdas is talking about in this particular uh talk that he gave all of, all those years ago. Uh, we've uh, a couple of times over the last couple of years we've presented the mindfulness and meditation course, online course from Ramdas. And it's been a a very, very popular course from Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. It really uh, contains some of just essential, essential teachings from Ramdas around mindfulness, around meditation, and it has some wonderful introductions to chants uh, that uh, he has done over the years and uh, really, really great guided meditation. So we're going to uh, add some new material. We're going to add some new elements to this course, and it's going to uh, reappear again as a s- the Mindfulness and Meditation Summer Refresher online course, June 15th here. So I, I wanted everybody to get a heads up on that, and if you aren't already... Subscribe to ramdas.org and get our emails, uh, then please do so. And by the way, wh- whoever amongst you is subscribed to ramdas.org, I've had this experience myself where somehow I accidentally hit a button that put somebody who I work with emails that went directly to scam, <laughs> not scam, spam. They were not scam. Uh, and, uh, and I'm like, how come I not getting emails from this particular person anymore? And I realized after I went in, I had inadvertently, uh, put that email address in the spam bucket. So check out anything coming from ramdas.org or love serve remember, uh, and, uh, take it out of the spams cause you're missing some great stuff that we offer. Uh, from the ramdas.org list. Just a little tip. Anyhow, how to become impeccable with whatever we are handed karmically in our lives. And there's a whole bunch of different things that really are thought-provoking in this talk. It's about, like, for instance, Ramdas talks about, you know how when we, when we were growing up, we were part of, most of us, Judaic or Christian um, traditions, possibly Muslim tradition. And we got uh, sick of, or we were just not, I got sick of the kind of formality that I was put through with the various high holidays of Judaism and the rituals uh, that ensued, and I rebelled. And basically what Ramdas talks about, these rituals just weren't feeding us. Uh, and he said, 
Did we get rid of something we needed? It's an interesting thought. And, of course, many of us turn to the East to pick up some of the rituals from the East to replace these as we got more conscious or as we realized there was a path. And uh, so he talks a, a lot about that or some about that in this talk. And uh, it's it's... I think it's something for us to really uh, discuss amongst ourselves. You know, we because when you actually go back into it after you've say been in the east or after you've been opened up in any which way, you can see that at the core some of these rituals and rites and uh, of uh, that we grew up with are perhaps uh way more fulfilling possibly than we thought they were in when we were in our youth going through uh, and rejecting them. I have found that in my own case that coming back to some of these uh, and it's more out of the, the mystical parts of the tradition that I got uh, more fulfillment. Uh, for instance, around the for me, it was around the Kabbalah, getting interested in that after I had come back from India and, and seeing some of the, first of all, seeing how, uh, how closely some of what was, particularly, in the, as I said, in the mystical tra tradition and Judaism of the Kabbalah, how that just fit perfectly with some of the more esoteric parts of Buddhism and Hinduism. So that's something that I think we all need to take another look at, perhaps. And as he says in this, did we throw out the baby with the bathwater? Um, another thing he talks about is, you know, when we do get into the, get onto the path, and we get very excited and we get sometimes a little bit dogmatic and, uh, and, and, and we start to push away the world prematurely. This is a major point. You know, I think he gives a, a good example of when he first came back, he, he ended up at his father's farm and he he didn't stay in the house because there was television, there was meat being cooked, and he would sit in his little, his little kuti, his little cottage, making his rice and, and uh, lentils and, and remaining as pure as possible. I did the same thing. When I came back from India, we stayed at my father's farm, interestingly enough, a few of us that had come back from India. And the first thing we did, and my father had... Uh, he had gone to India when we came back. He actually had met Maharaji. That's a whole other story, an interesting one. But he went back, took my sister and so on. And th that particular summer, we moved everything out of his house, all his furniture, because we wanted to be on the floor like we were in India. We wanted to duplicate the experience that we had had in, in India uh, exactly, so that we could hold on for dear life. And uh, 
of course, my father, when he finally came back and he looked, not only did we take out his, all his furniture, all his knickknacks, all his, all the things that reminded him of his life and his past and pictures, we dumped the whole thing. Uh, we didn't throw it out, though, thank God, because he got pretty pissed as it was. But it was just wrong-headed. Is the kind of wrong-headedness that Ramdas talks about here is holding on. You're, the more you're holding on to uh, to the experiences that you had and try and duplicate them and continue them, especially in the Western environment, and the more you push away all of the worldly things prematurely, they do come back and bite you. Uh, and the reality is, when stuff is ready to fall away, it falls away. It becomes not relevant anymore. You know, you don't want to watch uh, Game of Thrones. Okay, <laughs> you're not stopping yourself from watching it. It's just not interesting. We can't. A lot of people can't say that because Game of Thrones is like the Holy Grail. Sorry. Uh, what else? He talks about being graceful in, in the way uh, we embrace our practice. And that's just more of the same thing. Not to force stuff. Okay, I got to go meditate now because if I don't meditate, then I'm not fulfilling my spiritual path. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I like the word graceful. It's okay. Maybe just sit down for a minute, two minutes. And just relate to that spot that's the deeper part of ourselves so that, that we're not completely caught up in our desire systems and our attachment all the time. So just a little bit. That's okay. Uh, you know, and um, let's see. R towards the latter part of the talk that I chose uh, is really, to me, some of the most instructive stuff around how to become way more conscious about how we uh, deal with what we're handed karmically in our lives, how to, f how to really uh, embrace the spiritual path uh, in, a, in a very graceful way. And he talks about creating a life for ourselves uh, around remember, right? So our the foundation and everything we do and the, the only instruction we ever got from Maharaji was around love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. And here he talks a lot about the things that we can do to remember and do it lightly, not as a have-to, just as, gee, these are some great reminders. And what are they? They're books books by enlightened beings. They're having a little altar, a place that we sit at on a day-to-day -day basis that's our environment that we can be free in a deep, to, to relate with that deeper part of ourselves. Satsang, where we get together with people of like-mindedness. Listening to spiritual talks like this podcast with Ramdas. Engaging in chanting, kirtan, or or mantra practice, and of course, meditation. But consider it all as these are just reminders that 
push us without us pushing to a deeper part of the truth of who we are. Listening inward to find the deepest truth of your being. And cultivate through this remembrance, there's the ability to cultivate a witness for our lives. And and the and the basic one of the most interesting, not interesting, one of the most crucial things that has happened in my life is that I've seen through cultivating a witness, cultivating the remembrance and, and doing these kinds of practice, is how reactivity is cut down just absolutely reduced so that that knee-jerk stuff that, that we all engage in, some real spaciousness comes. You, know, you move from being reactive to being responsive. And that response, the responsiveness happens through the creation of space around the karmic events of our lives so really really instructive what Ramdas has to say in this particular talk yes may we all become impeccable with whatever we are handed karmically in our lives and this is Ramdas here and now on be here now network go to be here now network.com and uh, you certainly can take advantage of the wonderful teachings, the mindfulness teachings from Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and Jack Cornfield are just uh, extraordinary. And the heart of Krishna Das and Lama Surya Das and Roshi Joan Halifax. Uh, just, um, I, I'm honestly really proud to be involved with this network uh, that we created. I, I just think uh, I'm, I'm really happy for the offering that it is. And also, don't forget, Mind Rolling, the podcast I do on my own, just sitting around talking to people about just this kind of a thing, the path, consciousness, what's going on in our world, and how to live a life in balance. So that's Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. This is Ram Das Here and Now. We shall see you next week. Namaste. So... What I'm suggesting to you is that what we were talking about yesterday was reinforcing for many of you a way of gaining perspective about your own life so that you can see this is the soul's work, the incarnation is a soul's work, and I listen to hear what is my work and how do I do it impeccably. If it turns out that I am a mother and I am in a, this kind of an environment with this kind of a husband, with this kind of in-laws, with this kind of economic opportunities, within that situation, how do I become impeccable within that? How do I bring it back home? Now, there are two aspects that we have to talk about today. One is, how do you design your life to keep remembering this perspective, so you don't keep losing yourself back into your the tremendous seductiveness of your daily life drama, like the 
woman yesterday who asked, when you're dealing as a social service person with people who are angry and ungrateful, how do you deal with that stuff? How do you deal with your daily life in a way to remember and awaken? So, I mean, coming here to a retreat is one technique. That's a, a device. You all invested in a device to remind yourself. That's roughly what you did when you came here. And you say, well, that's my hit for the year. You know? And I need a hit every now and then. Ramdas, you're a great hit. Glad you're around. And, you know, and your books are hits and so on. Now, let's talk about that because in the early stages, I mean, if you look at exoteric religions in this culture, there is the Sabbath, there is Saturday as the day of rest in the Jewish tradition, there is Sunday morning going to church. When I was growing up in Boston, there were the blue laws, there were the rules of the game that said that Sunday was a day that was dedicated to God. It was a day to remember. There was no liquor, there were no theaters, there were no stores weren't open. There might be a local grocery store open, but that was already the beginning of the corruption. Now, the shopping malls, it's one of their biggest days. Now, Sundays, everybody's free to go shopping and be entertained. And there are big sporting events. And the whole quality of a day devoted to remembering, because we were so busy getting rid of the empty rituals. The question is, did we throw the baby out with a bath? When we got rid of the rituals because they weren't feeding us, did we get rid of something we needed? It's the same issue for us as whether or not the freedom that we realized when we got some affluence in this culture and some mobility, whether that freedom, we used it in a way to break up the extended family unit so that we ended up starving ourselves for something that we really needed, which was a sense of place within a family. Because what we've ended up with is these generational splits where old people go to Florida and young people go to rock festivals and everybody lives by generations and a couple feels they're free when they get out of the parents' home. In India, where I lived, I mean, when the marriage occurs, I couldn't believe my... Because I'm so much part of a personality cult, which is what we are. You don't realize how much we are obsessed with personality till you get out of this. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly obsessive, it really is. What do I need? What do I want? Are my desires being satisfied? Am I happy? Am I getting enough? Do you satisfy me? Can we work it out? I mean, it's far out. I mean, you can't believe it when you get into other cultures where they don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you say to an Indian, you're codependent, and they think you're off the wall, you know? But to meet a, uh, a young fellow who's um, in his 20s and, and he's about to be married to a woman who he's met for about 20 minutes 
because the marriage was arranged by the local astrologer and between the parents of the girl and his parents. And they get married and then there's this, a, a parade in which they carry the bed through the streets, which they deliver to the father's home, the boy's father's home, because it's a patriarchy and others are matriarchies and they do it the other way. And they go into the father's home and there the girl will come and she will serve the mother of the, her husband and the boy will serve the father and go into the father's business. And everybody knows exactly what they're going to do all their life. And you think, oh, that's terrible. There's no freedom. After a while, when you've gone in and out of those cultures enough and come back and seen what we have when we have freedom, you begin to wonder whether external freedom is really what it's about. And whether we're not talking about another kind of freedom which has to do with inner freedom because we're all trapped in all kinds of external form. We're all in bodies. We have to go to the toilet. We have to brush our teeth every day. Is that lack of freedom? We all have incredible restraints. We are all uh, affected by gravity. Do you feel trapped? A lot of people do. You know, they, you know, see, it's that one. Go into the samadhi tanks. The, it's, it's, what I, began, what I became aware of very much in the 60s was when we were having freedom of all kinds of freedoms. We were having a lot of freedoms that were correcting a lot of ills in the society. I mean, it was very clear that, that historically women have always been treated without an appreciation, without a full appreciation of their beings even though they have been honored. And it's very... And that's because this culture has such a one-sided... It's like a hunting tribe that has such a one-sided mentality. And that there are other... Again, in India, the women were very repressed at one level. They hung out in the kitchen and the men were in the living room. But somehow I knew, and I, because I was a holy person, I could go into the kitchen. The other men couldn't. And all I knew, it was more fun in the kitchen. <laughs> now you can say, but the poor women. And I, I'm, I'm appreciative of the predicament that people should have equal opportunity. And I think that we did a lot, we have done a lot, and we're doing a lot to get our act cleaned up. And I, I mean, I'm not arguing and speaking for a lot of prejudice. But we've got to be very careful about throwing out the baby with a bath again and again. And that the freedoms that we get often end up cutting us off from things that we need, which are our senses of being at home in the universe. That a lot of people, if you look at the, like in India, and I'm not, I keep mentioning India because that's the country I'm most familiar with, other than the United States. But in India, it's like the statement, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Um, the villages, there's 700,000 villages. And there's about eight or ten major cities. The cities were all created primarily by the English because uh, when the Industrial Revolution came along. They were created as economically viable things. Once they wanted industrial things, they moved the laborers there. 
which disrupted their web in the villages. In the villages, if somebody is hungry, it's everybody's concern. Once you get, you, if you live in New York City, some of you live in apartment buildings, you don't know the people even on your floor. You just don't have those relationships with people. And in a way, you say, well, I'm free. I live in a city. I'm not trapped back in the village. But what did you lose along the way? You lost a web of compassion or a web of caring. And then we create these artificial ones. We create these artificial social groups to try to, well, we call them artificial, they're real social groups, but they're, you create them in place of what we started with, So, now let's come back to the question of what we need in our lives to help us remember and help us gain perspective. I mean, you can do an exercise and have a sense of awareness that lies behind. I can go into meditation and sit at Barry... IMS up at Barry Insight Meditation Society and sit for 10 days and my mind will get quiet and I'll begin to appreciate the awareness that lies behind my thought and I'll get very clear and very quiet now what can I assume about when I leave there how long will it last when I went to India the first time, I came back and I was so stoned. I was so zonked. I was so high. I was so out there. I was so in love with the spirit. That when I came back and I came up to my father's farm in New Hampshire, there was a little cabin in the woods. I went into the cabin. I wouldn't even go into his house because the house had television and meat was cooking and there were a whole, I mean, all the no-nos that I couldn't have any dealings with. And I went into the little cabin and I bathed out of a bucket and I cooked my kedgeree, my rice and lentils over a fire and I was trying to hold on to my high as hard as I could. But slowly, slowly, it leaked out and I was left with some memories I was left with whatever in truth had truly changed in me. That was there. But I wasn't left with my high. And what's important is to separate out the spiritual materialism from the real stuff. The stuff that are the, the things you collect along the way that are little symbols of, of spirit but aren't the real thing. The real transformations in you are very profound and they're very deep and they're often very slow and they're very inevitable and they're irrevocable and once you have started to awaken you can't turn back it's gonna go on no matter people come up to me and they say I fell off the path you know I used to be so high I wore white and had flowers and everybody danced and sung and we lived in communes and now I've got three kids and I've got my insurance policies and Oh, God, I don't know. I can never get it. I don't know. I've lost it. It's terrible. And I'm, I play cards and I drink and, oh, God, I mean, and I, my car is, oh. 
And all I'm thinking about is what's on television, and I just want to, I just come home, I'm tired, I just want to read the paper. And I say to them, another part of the process. Because what you notice is that when you push away the world prematurely, it gets you. You become what I call phony holy. You pushed it away like, stay away from me. I don't look at television. I mean, I love people. It's, I don't have a television. I don't ever look at it. It's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Next birth. <laughs> Next birth, they'll have one big eye and they'll just sit in front of this. That's who all the people are that are doing it this time. That's what they said last time. See, that's what reincarnation gives you. It's that perspective. It's a television this time, well, next time you'll be done. Because there's a difference when you're busy. It's like the people that are non-smokers. I haven't smoked in three years, two months, two days, and ten hours, you know? I mean, they are so busy, they're probably going to die of non-smoking. They're as hooked on non-smoking as the smokers, as they were as smokers hooked on smoking. The issue is that when stuff is ready to fall away, it falls away. That's when you're ready to let it go. That's when it goes, and it goes naturally, and it goes... You just aren't interested. You're not busy not doing it. It just isn't relevant anymore. It isn't relevant anymore. Now, so that all of the practices I'm talking about to you now are practices that are useful to remind you, but you've got to be very graceful in the way you embrace practice. Because if you embrace it with too much ought and should, ultimately it's going to come back like a boomerang and hit you in the head. And it'll force you the other way with a kind of violent reaction. That's exactly what happened to exoteric Christianity and Judaism in this country. That most of us grew up, you know, it's Yom Kippur, you'll fast. Well, why? It doesn't matter, you'll fast. No. It's, it's Lent, you'll give up. You know. And there was you were impelled to pursue the rituals out of guilt or out of family obligation or because your authority told you to do it. It was a vertical thing. It didn't come out of your yearning for something. It came out of somebody else's feelings of righteousness. And as we've learned, as you look in your own lives, for most of us in this group, that didn't work. And what it did was it cut us off from the living truth of those spiritual traditions. I remember after I started to really reawaken to the spirit, because I went through my bar mitzvah and my circumcision and my confirmation and all of it, and with very, very little spiritual awareness. I mean, I could say the Baruchis, but I didn't know what they meant, because nobody cared that I knew what they meant, as long as I could say them. 
And then when I started to awaken, I remember going to church once, as I was going to all religious traditions, and I went to church, and the, the minister said, we will now sing hymn number 53 or something, and it was, um, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And I started to sing this thing, this hymn, and I went into ecstasy. And I looked around, and everybody else was singing it like they were reading the shopping list for the grocery store, you know. Holy, 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 Lord God. And it was this kind of tight, you know, like, okay, now, stand up, sit down, kneel, give dollar into the pot. Now I'm gone, I'm good. I'm good for the week. Okay. Now, many religious traditions have tried to keep living spirit, and I certainly don't mean that all of these traditions have not fed some people. There are in churches and there are in synagogues, there is still plenty of living truth. But in terms of mass ritual, it has primarily failed in the society. So as you come back into the spirit, I remember once um, when I came back in 69, 68 from India, and I lived up at the farm in New Hampshire. Pretty soon people started to gather and we'd talk about the spirit and the divine and love and truth and beauty. And, and a couple of hundred people would come every weekend to my father's farm. And then about 90 people were living on the farm in tree houses and tents. And Dad was very graceful about it all, I must say. And um, so one day the local, uh, a local minister came up and he said, because um, we had built a, a meditation, um, big screened-in meditation hut, a great big one, I mean about, about half the size of this building. And out in the woods. And he said, I understand you have a new church up here. I said, oh, no, no, we don't have a church. We don't have any minister. Well, it's just a spiritual gathering place. He says, oh, that's all it is. <laughs> so I said, would you like to see it? And he said, oh, yes, yes. And so he, he um, walked up the hill, and all these uh, young hippies were in tents and tree houses, and he, his eyes were like, you know. And Dad had put in a hose with a, we had bought a bathtub with a shower curtain around it, and somebody was taking a shower, and it was opaque. I mean, it wasn't transparent, but there was a body in there, and he, I could see his mind was orgy, orgy, orgy. You know, he was looking to see what was he was going to find. And he came into this room, which had a big dirt floor and a fire in the center of it, and there were people doing yoga, standing on their heads, and there were people reading the Bible, and there were people reading the Gita, and people chanting. I mean, it was quite a scene in there. And he looked and he said, oh, very interesting, very interesting. He said, perhaps you'd like to come to our, we have a bag lunch. All the ministers and priests get together. There were no rabbis in that town, but get together every Tuesday for a bag lunch. Maybe you'd like to come and tell us about your work. I said, well, maybe they'd all like to come up here for the bag lunch. He said, oh, I think that would be wonderful. So... <laughs> 
So that to next Tuesday, we got bridge chairs so they wouldn't have to sit on the floor. And we, it was a rainy day, and they all drove right up to the place and let the cars come right in. And they all sat around the fire. And I had all the kids, uh, people, talk about what had happened to them and what was happening to them. And by the end of it, I remember... I remember one minister, and there were tears streaming down his face, and he said, when I went to study for study theology, he said, it was my dream that I would, he said, I went because I had a deep spirit, spiritual calling. He said, but everything that has transpired since then in my church and in my role and in what's expected of me has stifled that. And he said, do you think there's any chance that this spirit will come back into the church? And there was something so poignant about this person being a, a minister of God, an instrument for providing that to the culture, and was part of an institution that was starving to death. The heart was starving to death because of what had happened to the ritual. It was interesting because, uh, just a little funny side story, later on in the summer, um, there was a little concern in the town because uh, as this thing got more visible, as so many hundreds of people were coming all the time, because people knew that I was, had been connected with drugs and the community was concerned about drugs, so I was asked to speak to the local drug concern group the police chief and all of the, you, the mayor and all the people about drugs. So I came and spoke about the, what we were doing up in the community and about drugs. And um, at the end, there was a kind of a stony silence because they weren't sure, they didn't want, nobody wanted to commit themselves as to whether we were good or evil. And um, a nun stood up. And she said, you know, I don't know whether these people are doing good work. I, she said, I don't know anything about their history. She said, all I know is that two of the young people came to our church, and I watched them at communion. She said, in the many years I've been in that church, she was a woman about 60, she said, I have never seen people so open to the divine as they were. And she said, they reawakened my faith. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Alpert, for bringing these young people to our church. What she didn't know, that one of them was a Jew and one of them was a Protestant. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, now we come back into... What do we do in our own lives? Because if the social institutions, one of the things that's happened is that a lot of people that are awakened to the spirit through Eastern traditions then start to listen to where their uniqueness is and they realize that I was born a Jew or I was born a Christian and they want to reinvest their tradition with the living spirit.
And very often a Christian can find the living spirit in Christ even though they can't find it in Christianity. I mean, the Christianity has certainly, the, like communion and communion has been a ritual that has managed to keep some edge of living spirit all the way through. When you watch people take communion, you often see a, a taste of living spirit that is just mind-blowing. If you just watch their faces as their tongue goes out of that quality. So you look around for satsang or sangha or the community as it's called. That means the community of other people who are on the journey with you. Because you want to hang out with them. Because once something, once you appreciate it, see the predicament is that the, the spiritual aspect of yourself, as I said yesterday, isn't nearly as evident or pronounced as the, as the physical material aspect. You're much more aware of a pain in your knee than you are of your soul. You're much more aware of your hunger in your belly than you are of your hunger for God or goddess. You're much more aware of your bills unpaid than you are of your, your karma. And what we're talking about now is a shift of perspective of life so that you begin to look at your life from a spiritual vantage point. In order to do that, there are some things you can do to help you do that. One of them is you come to something like this. In Burma, for example, when people go on vacation, they don't go off to, quote, have fun they go on vacation to retreats. They go on vacation and they, and it's interesting. I mean, it's like when Club Med puts in a spiritual library. It's, do you go to Club Med or do you go to Omega? Well, Omega's the beginning of the edge of that. And when you finish with Omega, do you go to an ashram? Because if you have 50 weeks a year when you work and then two weeks when you're free, quote, externally free, what do you do then? Do you drive as hard as you can to exhaust yourself? You come back a wreck to spend the next 50 years before you can exhaust yourself and your funds again? Or do you go to a place where you will quiet your mind and open your heart and deepen your spiritual connection so you will come back refurbished to reinvest in life from a new perspective. And I think it's worth thinking about, is what you do with your spare time. What do you do with your weekends? I mean, what do you do? What do you fill them with? What do you fill your evenings with? What do you fill your mornings with when you wake up before you start the game? Because it's in those little moments and bigger moments that you have the chance, once you start to awaken, it doesn't mean anything to do it beforehand, but once you've started to awaken, you start to use those little places in your life as reminders. Like for some people, you understand the term a puja table or a puja space. It's, it's, a, it's a space in your home. It might be in your closet. It might be in your bedroom. It might be in a, in a 
library. It might be in a separate room. It's a space that you have set aside as a place to remind yourself. It's a place where you go and you, when you sit down there, you don't answer the telephone. You don't bring the newspaper. It's a place where you put around you the books that turn you on, that awaken you, that remind you. Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, Ramakrishna, um, words of the Buddha, the Bible, uh, the uh, Talmud, the uh, whatever, the Tao, the I Ching. I mean, there's all uh, the mishpacha, the spiritual family you hang out with. And you just hang around with them, and they're there. They're just these little books, and you can pick up any one of them and open anywhere and read something because the people that wrote them are writing them from the place that says that's what the game is about. They're reminding you. They're, they are satsang. They are portable satsang. And there are a lot of people who live... There's a great line in the Ramayana, in the story of Ram, in which uh, there's a demon, Ravana, the bad guy. I can't tell the story this weekend, but there's a demon, the bad guy, and he's got a good brother, Rava, uh, Vibhishan. And at one point, Hanuman the monkey says to Vibhishan, how are you living here among demons? It's like living in the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> no offense. And um, I love Manhattan, actually. I think it's a very spiritual place, by the way. Um, but uh, Vibhishan answers, he said, it's like the tongue living between the teeth. It's a great image. And for many people who live very much in a very harsh world of very material greed and anger and harshness, it is like living, it's like the tongue living among the teeth. And the thing that you're trying to cultivate is so delicate and so subtle that it's very, very hard to do that. And so you look around for somebody else, but often you don't find somebody else. You might look on the, uh, the, lawn, the walls at the laundromat or find a spiritual bookstore and find that there's a meditation group that meets on Tuesday nights in somebody's home and you go and sit. And it may turn out to be true satsang or sangha or the community or it may turn out to be a spiritual hype. And only you will know and you've got to trust your heart about it. Because just every group that meets under the banner it's a spiritual group doesn't mean it's a real spiritual group, as we've all learned. And even big ones, by the way, even big fancy ones with hotels and everything. <laughs> you know, you know, and, and powers and everything. Go, be careful. Trust your own heart. Trust your heart that you're dealing with the real truth of the spirit. So often you don't have other people. If you're lucky, you do, because it is luck to have spiritual beings around. And the higher the being and the clearer, the better your luck. It's great to have a guru. It's not necessary, but it's great. But you may not. And you may not even have other folks around. Then you have books. And you have tapes. I mean, a lot of people do their heavy spiritual work sitting in traffic listening to tapes these days. Or going to bed at night listening to a tape as they go to sleep. I remember this couple coming up to me, they were about in their 60s, and they said, you know, you go to bed with us every night. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I think that's really, uh, I mean, there are a lot of ways that technology is assisting us spiritually. I mean, for me, psychedelics were certainly technology that assisted me. I know some of you don't feel that, but that's okay. I won't push that today. Push is a funny word. Um, but uh, tapes have certainly done a great deal, too. And uh, videos and things like that. Imagine looking at spirit on television. We're working on that. Because it's a media just waiting, by the way, to be an instrument of spiritual transmission as soon as it is wanted by the culture, it will happen. It's interesting because at one point I thought, well, you know, if I'm doing this all the time and I go around, if I go on tour, like a few years ago I went on tour, I did 60 cities, Jai organized it, and we did 60 cities, Jai and I, and that was one city every other night for four and a half months. Okay, you realize what that's like? I mean, you spend all your life in airports and Ramada inns and holiday sixes and stuff like that. And hello, hi, and goodbye, and yes, hi, and you know. Sure, I'll sign this book, and on you go. And it was a hundred, maybe a hundred thousand people, 150,000 people. So you think, well, if I do, if I took that energy and put that into television, they're dealing with audiences of 40 million people. Is the medium the wrong medium for the transmission because thus far it hasn't transmitted it? Some of you saw a Joseph Campbell series. Now, it's interesting that Joe Campbell was the real thing. I mean, Joe Campbell, he wasn't a, an enlightened being, but he was a very, very evolved consciousness and a very compassionate and very thoughtful being and a very wise being. And that came through. And the power of that was a reminder. That got as far as PBS. It didn't mainstream, but it got as far as PBS. PBS is still not mainstream, you understand. But it got as far in. Most of us work on access. We may get from access to cable. And then you go from access to cable to PBS. Then you go from access to cable to PBS to, to CBS. So I decided, well, I'll go top. I'll just go for CBS and NBC. I mean, why, you know, why? I mean, either God's God or God isn't. A goddess is God or a goddess isn't. So I um, prepared a whole program, and I went to Hollywood. Uh, Ram Dass goes to Hollywood. And And I decided not to, you know, waste time. I'd go right to the top. So I, I sat down with people like Norman Lear, who did All in the Family, and, and uh, the people that do uh, Golden Girls, and, you know, all these, all these people that are making it in the world there, you know. And by the time I finished two weeks, I was... I wasn't depressed. I'd gone through that. <laughs> but I realized that it would be so homogenized on the way through. It would be so emasculated. Or the, the power of the spirit, because, well, in order to market this, I mean, when, 
Like I remember when Norman Lear was telling me at dinner how he had done a uh, he had done a he was doing a show on a Hispanic family to, as a follow-up of All in the Family. And it was a 13-part series, and he was developing the characters, and he was concerned about the compassion and so on, and it was a very caring thing. And he said the show got pulled after four segments because the audience wasn't because the executives didn't feel it was going to make it. Now here was Norman Lear, who was like a top dollar in Hollywood, and he still didn't have the power to allow him to even develop his characters. And I thought, boy, if it is that harsh a reality, if it is run by the bookkeeping department, by the accountants of the multinationals, uh, it's not a game that you can play easily. You've got to come at it a different way. It's as if the, the, the control of the media, it's as if the culture won't allow itself to awaken in a certain way. Now, part of it is the marketing. Do you market spirit as entertainment? See, people said, now, if you have a dramatic script, we might consider it. Is that what you do? Because people are so hooked on being stimulated in a certain level of emotionality. Danny Goleman, who's on the board of SEVA and is, writes for the New York Times, he's the, one of the behavioral science editors of the New York Times. Danny is working on the, with a lot of people like Bill Moyers and others on the issue of what the news is in America. He says the news feeds only the reptilian brain. And the reptilian brain is the brain that always wants to make sure that there's no danger around. And one of the things that makes you happy is when the danger is happening to somebody else. It satisfies the reptilian brain. And if you look at the news, that's about as far as it goes. And all of the issues of the news of compassion or the news of depth or the news of really reflective stuff, the culture and the media and everybody, it's a conspiracy of keeping us unconscious in an interesting way. And I don't mean that, I don't want to get into conspiratorial, I'm not paranoid because that's who we are. It's not them doing it to us, you understand. It's us doing it to us. It's who we are. Buddha said, what did you expect? He said, who takes breath on this plane anyway? He said, everybody, by the nature of their karma, has the five hindrances. They have lust and greed. That's just one of them. They have lust and greed. Hatred and ill will is the second one. Agitation is the third. Sloth and torpor is the fourth. And doubt is the fifth. Now, when you look at your... So who's the television audience? Hatred, lust, sloth, agitation, and doubt. And that's who we are. We are also something else. But you see, that also is a very quiet little voice compared to the power of all those other things. And if lust and greed and sloth and agitation don't get you, doubt will. I mean, is this really real or is this bunch of crap? I mean, I don't really know. I mean, science hasn't shown me the soul exists. How do I really know? Now, I really know my car isn't working. But I don't really know that there's spirit. You and I are dealing with something that is, that's why it's called mystical, it's called ephemeral, it's called all of the blah names. 
So for you to find this little delicate flower and then cultivate it, Ramakrishna says at the beginning what you do is you, when you have a little tree, you put a fence around it so the cows don't walk over it. Later, when it's a big tree, the cows can rub against it and they can get shade from it and everything. You don't assume that you're already ready to take... They talk about some people can cross the great ocean and they're a big ship and they can take many people across. Some people can barely get themselves across because they're, they're, they're traveling on a straw. And some people just paddle out and drown in the world of existence, depending on your sort of incarnation, your evolutionary readiness. So what you do is you create a life for yourself that helps you remember people, books, a place in your home, tapes, little things that help remind you. In that moment when you sit, and I'm talking about moments, I'm talking about like 20 minutes. I don't really care if you just took that 20 minutes and sat looking out a window. No, don't look at anything. Sit quietly. Sit in a way where you are contemplative. I'm talking about contemplation. I'm not talking about meditation now. I'm talking about just letting your mind reflect quietly without picking up a book or a newspaper or anything. What I'd suggest is that in the morning or in the evening or on weekends or whenever you can, you take whatever spiritual book interests you, read about one paragraph of it, a shloka, one paragraph, something, then put it down, and then just let your mind run free for 15, 20 minutes. If you would do that every day for even a month, that's a pretty easy thing to do. That's not demanding that you go to India or that you sell your house or that you give all your money to me or that you sign up. All that's required is you take 20 minutes to quiet down, to gain a perspective about your life because if you read one reminder, and then look at your life. Like I take the Tao, say the line from the Tao, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. Take that one line. Truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. I think the next line is, when you have desire, you see only the outward container. Now, just take truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. Now, you sit there and you think, see, I would like to know truth. Do I have any longing? And then you begin to see what your desire systems are. Now, if you keep doing that, if you every day, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing, and you say, well, is it possible that I could find a place in myself that doesn't want anything? See, this is just reflection. This is contemplation. You're not meditating now. You're just reflecting about it. You keep reflecting about who you are and listening inward and inward and inward to find the deeper truth of your being. It's a very simple mechanical thing to do. 
I do this all the time. I just sit quietly and just keep listening and going inward and be cultivating a witness of my own life. The part of you that watches your own life unfolding. Most of us are so reactive. You get up in the morning, your bladder is full. Reaction. Got to go to the toilet. Smell coffee. Reaction. Boy, I need a cup of coffee. Watch. My God, it's 8.15. Reaction. Reaction. He cut me off. Reaction. Good morning. Reaction. Oh, my God, look what's going on in Lebanon. Reaction. 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 You are reactive all day. There is no reflective moment in your day. It's so busy being reactive to just stuff, and you come back, and you've just had a day full of reactions. And you are like a mechanical automaton. And the newspaper knows that if it runs up a certain headline, you'll salute. And you are just like, I mean, the ads are designed for just you. Certain ads that will awaken your prurient interests, certain that will awaken your guilt, certain ones that will awaken your fear, and then they'll play upon you. As you become more reflective, you move from being reactive to being responsive, which means that there is a, a, there is a moment between the input and the response. See, what happens is the world acts upon you and then if you are totally on automatic, you give a reaction which is habitual and learned. It's probably what your father did to you and your mother did to you and all that stuff. So something comes and you say, that's nice. Something else comes and you say, oh, that's horrible. And if you trace that back, you'd find it all the way back in your you know, where you learned it and all that stuff. All those attitudes are all well-learned, and you're just a reactive person. We're all in that stuff. We're all in it. You start to mediate the input and the reaction with space. What do you do in that space? Something comes in. Depending on how you have cultivated that inner space, it can, you can go into absolute emptiness at that moment. You just go quiet. You don't think of the response. You just wait. You empty and trust and go deeper to feel an intuitive, a deeper response to it. And what comes out is something that comes from a deeper part of your truth. I'm, uh, that's a very complex thing I'm trying to convey to you, and I may try, I'm tr I think, perhaps trying to do too much to, for you, or to you, or with you. That, that's a key issue. See, as you cultivate some kind of reflective space in yourself, then you are able to process the universe around you and provide a response that brings the universe back into harmony, that is a healing response rather than a reactive response which perpetuates the suffering of the world.
really far out situation. And that has to do with the emptiness of your own mind. There was a period of time in the late 60s when I started to notice that I wasn't thinking anything a lot of the time. And I thought, uh-oh, that's what they said would happen. <laughs> I obviously took too many drugs, and this is the result. Because I had been trained as a, as a Harvard professor to think all the time. That was my stock in trade. I remember I used to fly my airplane. I had a little Cessna. And... Um, I used to have a clipboard on my leg with a paper so I could, while I was flying, I could write down ideas, theories and theses and hypotheses because that was my stuff and I'd come back with all, I'd fly across the country and I'd come back with credible research designs and I was thinking all the time because you had to keep thinking. And then in the late 60s, I began to notice my mind was empty. And I got frightened because I wasn't thinking anything. But then I noticed that when I got over my panic about not thinking anything, that when my mind was empty, when something was necessary, it was there. My fear that it wouldn't be there kept it from being there. But once I got over the fear of it not being there, it was there. And I started to relax into it and be aware that between times when I... And then I understood Vivekananda's line that the thinking mind is a terrible master but a wonderful servant. That what had happened was I had found a place to stand in my being that was behind my thinking mind so that instead of cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, it's sum ergo cogito, I am and I think, or sum et cogito, I am and I think which is another way of doing it. It's the reverse side of that coin. I found the space behind thought. And when you develop this reflective quality, this contemplative quality, you might read um, um, Thomas Merton, for example. He's a great contemplative. I mean, all kinds of little stories, Rabbi Nachman, there are lovely little stories, the Baal Shem Tov, they're just wonderful little, little stories that keep reminding you, keep awakening. Like one rabbi saying, I didn't go to that other rabbi to study the Torah, I came to watch him tie his shoes. You think, well now, what does that mean? And you sit with it for a while, until you begin to get a sweetness an understanding of how spirit translates into life. Into life. And you sit with it and you reflect. And then you begin to look at your life. And you notice that you got very holy chanting. But then when you got on the subway, you got very irritated. See? And 10,000 times you get holy and you get irritated. You get holy and you get irritated. And if you keep watching that, after a while, the watcher says, this is really off the wall. The watcher, but then that's just judgment, and the watch, you watch the judgment. Oh, judging, ah, uh, so. You just watch it. Ah, anger. Ah, bliss. Ah, anger. Ah, emptiness. Ah, bliss. Ah, anger. Ah, irritation. Till pretty soon, as you get on the bus and you get irritated, you're going, ah, irritation. 
And the, the witness starts to dwell with you all the time. For me, it's my guru. He's always hanging around with me saying, well, Ram Dass, pretty interesting. Going like this. Or he's laughing at me or he's giggling. That's my own deepest truth. That's my own self talking to me. It's like you start to have a dialogue between the deepest part of your being and the part of your being that is the familiar personality part. It's a dialogue, and at first, the deeper part of your being is an imaginary playmate that you've created. Later on, as it gets stronger, it turns out that your personality was the imaginary playmate. Okay. That's the transition we're talking about. It's bizarre when it finally happens. When you realize, okay, who will I be? You wake up, well, here goes Ramdas, and you wipe, you know, put the mask on. Hi, I'm Ramdas, you know. And you go off to work and you play your part. And you say, well, is that hypocritical? To the extent that people think I'm my personality, they're getting hyped. But to the extent that they are listening to hear who I am, I'm in here. I'm not who you project me to be. I mean, people walk up to you. It's interesting. You walk down the street after a while. And it's like everybody has these huge mind nets coming out of their heads that are trapping you. Because they're projecting, as we said yesterday, like each person, the way they dress, the way they sit, the way, remember how you saw how each person's telling you who they think they are. So somebody's walking down the street saying, I'm helpless, I'm helpless, I'm helpless, help me. Somebody else is walking down the street saying, I'm a lion, you know. I'm very responsible. I'm a Republican. Somebody else walking down the street saying, I'm laid back, baby. I'm somebody else saying, watch out, I'll rip you off. Somebody watches coming and saying, let's go to bed. You know, I mean, you can feel each person's walking down the street with a storyline. And most people are very trapped in their storyline. They take themselves seriously. They think that's who they are. And they're really projecting it out. And they're trying to suck you in to a conspiracy to buy that reality. They're saying, this is who I think I am, and they suck you in until, and we play a little game with each other. I'll make believe you are who you think you are if you'll make believe I am who I think I am. And we won't upset the water. And that's what most marriages are, by the way. That's the horror of marriage. At its worst, at its best, it cuts through that and it's living truth. At its worst, people get caught in conspiracies of make-believe, in which they end up starving to death, living together, because they don't cut through the bullshit to get to where they really are with each other. And I don't mean processing psychodynamics. I mean going behind that stuff. Human relationships are too interesting as a vehicle for awakening to waste them on the folly of the, the tiny fears that keep you in the conspiracy that keeps you cut off from each other. It isn't worth it. I will, be in, I will be with other human beings who only offer me the conspiracy, and if I have to be with them, I won't demand they be anything else. They have a right. We don't have any rule. The contract between us doesn't demand truth, but I'm sitting there waiting, and if you want to come out and play, I'm here. I'm not your projection of Ramdas. I'm here as a being. You can turn me into, oh, Ramdas, or hi, Dick. Either one is just your projection. And when I walk, I can feel myself. It used to be weird when I had beard and wore beads and a dress. 
and I walk through an airport, you know. Because, I mean, the dress projects one image, but the beard, you know, is a contradiction. So I'd walk through this airport, you know, and I'd see people, and you'd see a, they go from yick to fascinating to a spiritual person to, God, I hate to kiss him. And you could, you could see it in all their faces. You could see all the projections of mind. When you're quiet enough inside, you see how you're being taken through these mind nets one after another. You walk into an office building and you go into a mind net that creates a reality that you find yourself slowly moving into. Hello, how do you do? I'm, you know. It's like I always talk about the example of going into the bank. See, and if I've just gotten up out from my puja table and I've been reading holy books and I've been reading about the goddess and I look and I see, oh, God, she's everywhere. And I walk into the bank. The woman says, good morning. May I help you? See, and I look and I see, there's the divine mother in drag. I mean, and I see the radiance coming out of her, but she doesn't see it. Because she's busy thinking she's a teller. And she thinks I'm a customer. Now, it's two levels, you realize that for me, at the first, when I begin to see that she's not just the teller, I can scream, don't you realize you're not the teller? And she'll push the button and the police will come and take me away. <laughs> That's the first stage. That's the stage when you're furious that everybody isn't aware of who they are and awakening because, my God, why are you wasting your life? A later stage... You walk in, you look, you see the divine light, you love her, you say, would you cash my check? You play your part, she plays her part, but there is nothing in your mind that treats the part as so real that if she, doesn't, if she wants to come up, there's nothing that will keep her from awakening into that moment. And what you find when you are quiet enough and spacious enough, you will be amazed at how many of the people you know day by day that you thought were closed down tight and busy in their role are right there when you're right there. That's what's so far out. I mean, people come up to me, people came up to me in this retreat and said, my father, you know, I thought he was, and then... I was sitting with him and we were talking and suddenly I realized that and it was their readiness, their openness that allowed their, that father, the father was there all the time. I kid about the story, I think it's in Be Here Now, about you know, you go to India looking for the holy people and you come back and you find it's your Aunt Thelma cooking chicken soup. It's the Buddha. She says, have some soup. My Aunt Thelma really loved that, by the way. She's, she's got that page framed in her room. <laughs> See, as you... What you do is you quiet and practice and develop the quietness either through retreat or through 
pilgrimage or through study or through reflection or through tapes in your car. So, and then you practice. You go out into your life and you practice. You practice keeping responsive instead of reactive. You practice emptying your mind in the middle of situations rather than just perpetuating the, the dial, the, the reactivity of it. You practice seeing the divinity, the seeing the spirit in other people. You practice. You keep practicing with your life. You use the stuff of your life as an opportunity to practice. When I went to India the first time, I came back and I went to my family's home and I came in and I was a cross between Christ and the Buddha. I was radiant. I had power coming out of my third eye and I was really out there, very, very holy. And my father said, got a job? And I crashed. I mean, he, he did it to me in less than 10 minutes. He got me. And it was like back to the drawing board. I wasn't ready yet. Because finally you realize your family, they know the code for where your deepest attachments of mind are. They'll always find one that'll get you. Like, are you still eating sugar or you, whatever it is, you know. You know? Oh, you don't have time for me. How about that one? You used to like to, <laughs> there's thousands of them, and it takes a long time before you can go and be with the family. See, that's, finally, as you get more conscious, what you keep doing is rerunning old relationships to bring them up to, the, up, to, up to speed, up into the present consciousness. And some people will come right along with it, and others won't. If they don't, that's their business. Your job isn't to do something violent to somebody else. You don't have any moral right to take anybody's suffering away. You have a moral responsibility to create an environment where they can let go of their suffering if they wish. And you have a moral right to, to not create conditions that impose suffering. But you can't take somebody's suffering away. That's, that's really interesting. That's, it's very hard because, like with your child, you really want to do that. You want to protect them from suffering. But you don't even know why the suffering's there. Because the suffering is part of the way in which you cultivate compassion. I'm going to finish the um, sequence of... Um, how we remind ourselves and how we build into our lives these practices. And as I said yesterday, the witness in you starts sometimes as 1% and 99% is busy being taking seriously your life. You're busy being angry and 1% can notice you're angry. And you keep cultivating that until that's a good chunk of your consciousness. A good chunk of your consciousness is just sitting here. You have cultivated, it's called cultivating equanimity. You're just cultivating a place inside that is the witness, that is just aware of what's happening. It's not judging it. It's not trying to change it. Be careful. The witness is not judging and not trying to change. It is just noticing. That's a very important thing to see, to separate those issues out. 
because most people think you're using the witness to change something. You've got to adopt a more passive relationship to that. As you witness your life more, as you bring the light of the witness to bear, your life will change. You don't have to manipulate your life to change. It will change as the witness gets stronger. Because as you watch the way you get caught in your own reactivity, as you watch it, that witness, that appreciation feeds back into the system and you're less likely to get caught in the future. Because you begin to see it earlier and earlier and earlier until you're even seeing it as you get caught. In terms of spiritual practices, now there's meditation, there's study, there's devotion, there's pilgrimages, there's hatha yoga, there's um, um, tantra, there's all kinds of things. And within meditation there are dozens of different techniques. What you listen to What I really listen to are my intuitive pulls. That is, I feel a yearning to quiet my mind because I can see how my mind is so agitated. My mind, I'm so caught in my thoughts of the this's and that's and I've got to do something about this and that that I'm not, I'm losing my equanimity and then I'm pulled towards meditation. And I'm pulled towards practices that will just deepen the quietness and the concentration, the mindfulness. There are other times when I can feel that my heart is closed and my emotions are in the service of my intellect that I'm saying, I love you, but I'm saying it with my head, not truly loving. And then I realize I have cut to cultivate those qualities of heart. Those are very hard to cultivate. You can't just turn on your heart like that. But you can create a lifestyle that cultivates qualities of compassion and qualities of love and devotion. I mean, I've met many people who do devotional practices whose hearts are very closed. But I've also seen the way devotional practices can open and deepen the heart. Like chanting last night. For some people, you chanted and it didn't do anything. And for other people, you could chant and you could feel the thing happening to you inside yourself. There's no blame. You've got to understand different strokes for different folks. And it's not permanently the same stroke for the same folk all the time. It's different strokes for different folks at this moment and now at this moment. What is, at some moments, I go to our temple in Taos, our little Hanuman monkey temple, and I go into ecstasy. I went there the other recently for Guru Purnima for a celebration. And I was chanting and I just went into such a space I couldn't even move for hours. I just, or an hour. I just sat there, just out there with my guru. And it was a tremendous feeding experience for me. At other times I go there and all I'm aware of is the politics and the infighting and the social stuff. And I can't get out of there fast enough and it's a real drag and nothing happens at all. Now, at first, because I'm, 
a powerful person in that situation, when I felt politics and all, I'd say, we've got to close this temple, this is terrible. And then other times, when I'd feel this wonderful bliss, I'd open my checkbook and I'd say, here, here's more money. Then I began to realize this was just my head going through these changes and my heart. And I started to develop equanimity and I realized, ah, this time I'm turned on, this time I'm turned off. And then my reactions were turned into responses and I looked at the situation and saw whether there was money needed or support or something needed to be changed from a quieter place. Now, I've been put down a lot for being such an eclectic and such a dilettante in the, in the sense of spiritual dilettante because I, I spend time in Buddhist practices and among them even. I've been involved in Mahayana Buddhism, in Theravadan Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism. And I've been to all those ashrams and monasteries and I've been beaten by, by Roshis and I've been taunted by... by Nyingma and Kaju Lamas, and I've been given malas by Galukpa Lamas, and I've been chided by Theravadan monks, and I mean, I, then I've been in the Sufis. I mean, I've, been, I've danced and sung with Sufis, and I've hung out with them. In fact, Pierre Valayat is the chairman of the board of this place, and I'm on the board, so we get a chance to play together all the time when we, have, when we decide about this building. And then Zalman Shakter, who's a great, um, great Hasid, and we, we, we play together. And Brother David Stendelrast, who's a wonderful monk, and we hang out. And I feel so graced because when you meet a mensch in any tradition, it's a mensch. Uh, that's a Sanskrit word that means... Um, <laughs> it means uh, a full being, uh, uh, a fully developed being. And what I do is when I feel the truth of any spiritual tradition, I go towards it like a bee towards a flower. And when it feels phony, no matter how impressive its credentials, I walk away from it. And so people don't understand how I can be this way. And I say, I must listen to my heart. I must listen to my intuitive heart. Because only I know what I need at that moment. Because my deepest truth is my guru. And that's where I hear it, in the deepest part of my being. Now, at an early stage... What happens is you take your strength. If your strength is your mind, you are attracted towards things like study or pitting the mind against the mind, like Krishnamurti or Zen Buddhism. These are pitting the mind against the mind. They are very exquisite. They take tremendous discipline of the mind to do them. They're not heart spaces particularly. If your heart's the strong thing, you may find yourself tremendously drawn to devotional practices, to loving Christ, to singing to Krishna, to serving the poor or the helpless or the needy. Later on in your practice, you go to a different place. Later on, you arrive at the space where 
your faith is strong enough so you instead of wanting to get high all the time you want to become free that's a shift of consciousness and once you want to become free you become interested in those things which bring you down those things which catch you those things where your where your work still is so if your heart is weak at that point instead of leaving it behind and going with your mind you go towards the heart you start to work with your own weaknesses you start to work if you don't get along with people you start to put yourself in situations to observe and work when your witness gets strong enough then you start to take on the places in you that are keeping you from god or goddess you keep you take on the places that are keeping you from living spirit those are stages of of sadhana stages of spiritual practice and it's not good to you know just be truthful with yourself along the way in spiritual work there are a lot of signposts there is increased equanimity there is increased joy even in the midst of suffering we'll talk more about that one later there is increased clarity of mind there is increased lightness and delight in the play of life and an ability to play with life rather than be played upon by life there is a deepening quality of compassion that is as the fourth chakra or the heart chakra opens there is a deepening of appreciation that somebody else's problem is not their problem it's our problem that's what compassion is about compassion isn't kindness and pity it's not me feeling compassion for you compassion is we come together calm we come together in in our passion so that if you're in pain i'm in pain because you're in pain they say of a saint that everybody is their child and when you think of a child starving to death every 40 seconds and then imagine being a saint where it's always your child starving to death every 40 seconds you realize what it means to have an open heart in the midst of suffering and there is a quality of emptiness there is a quality of emptiness and that's one is that's the really scary final one that i was talking about but it's it ends up deepening in the world where it's all empty all the forms are empty nothing's happening you're not going anywhere nothing's ever going to happen again it's all play it's nothing it's nothing and you say have you made profane the world no it's empty and it's precious at the same moment and you don't have to hide from the emptiness for fear it's going to take away from the preciousness you find the balance between those two things so there's equanimity there is joy there is emptiness there is compassion there is love there is a learning a sense of the truth that lies behind forms all of which are only relatively true these are signposts along the way the predicament is that the experience of any of them is an experience it isn't the thing itself and it is it smacks of what's called spiritual materialism 
so that when you get spiritual joy, you get hooked on the experience of the joy, which is less than the true spiritual joy. The spiritual joy is just nothing special. So when something is very special, it's like a bliss state you're trying to cling to, it is just spiritual materialism that's passing show. It's wonderful and lovely, and it's a signpost along the way, but in the long run, it's going to go, and it's not the deepest truth of the joy. And finally, you are just doing what you do every day, and in it there is lightness, there is play, there is equanimity, there is compassion, there is emptiness, there is joy, and there is love, and there's truth, and there's beauty, and it's nothing special. Aha. That's when they talk about the Zen. All he does is wash dishes. And he just does it. Nothing special. It's very simple. That's so extraordinary because we make the spiritual path into such a, you know, saints with powers and light pouring out of their heads and they're zapping and moving this and that. That's all great. But that is all, as, as my guru used to say about a saint in the South who gave miracles, he says, that's all for children. And Miracle of Love, which is the book I did about my guru, I now look at that book as an incredibly beautiful book, but also a book that showed the limitations of my own perceptions because it focused inordinately on power rather than on love. Because if you see, because now I see him and I see that the power wasn't what was significant. And I knew that at some level, but the stories people kept telling me were the power stories. Because when you say, tell me a story about my guru, they tell you, well, he did this miracle, he turned this light on, he appeared in two places, and I write it down. People don't tell you the nothing special stories. And yet the nothing special is the essence of the realized spiritual being. And all the powers are just the little pizzazz that's done for the doubters. There was a great um, um, Shirdi Sai Baba, not Satya, not the one that's present, but Shirdi Sai Baba, the old one. He used to have powers pouring out of him. I mean, when an old couple came and their money had been ripped off so they couldn't go visit the Ganges, he said, you don't have to go anywhere, and out of his feet poured the river so they could have the river. I mean, he had that kind of... At one point when he came into a village... I mean, I love these stories, of course. They're such fun. He was a young guy, and everybody sort of thought he was kind of mentally unbalanced, and, and he'd go around begging for oil for his lamp to do his puja. So they thought they'd play with him, so they gave him water instead of oil, and he went back and lit it, and it burned. And he said, I give them what they want, so they'll want what I give. And Maharaj is saying, miracles are for children. And then you begin to understand how nothing special it is. There's nobody there. That when you're a tree and a river, then you're a full being. You're all of it and you're nothing. You're all of it and you're nothing. And your compassion is coming out of emptiness. It's not like, I'll be compassionate. Or what a rush I'm getting from being serving. You serve because that's what you are. And Gandhi said, when you have completely surrendered to God, you find yourself in the service of all that exists. It becomes your joy and recreation. It's not something, I think I'll do good. See, doing good is a practice. 
then it becomes the thing itself. So, sadhana or spiritual practice is very special until it's nothing special. And all the markers along the way are markers, but remember they are all spiritual materialist traps. Every component you experience of the spiritual journey, closeness to the goddess, or closeness to the guru, or the experience of emptiness, all those experiences are traps. What you want is beyond the experience, where you are it. You don't have it. Everything you have, you will lose. Everything you are, you are. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.